the phrase that pays, the phrase that stopped me dead last week as we interviewed somebody, and the EMT or the medic said, I can make more money putting fries into the oil than I can putting gauze into the wound. And that really stopped me, blew me away, and went, wow, we need to fix that. Yeah, I was at a Five Guys that had a higher, a Five Guys Burgers and Fries um, that had a, a starting wage higher than, than the ambulance service in the community. Hello and welcome to 2023. First of all, I'm your host, Rob Lawrence, and this is EMS One Stop. And to kick us off, I was sitting there looking through LinkedIn, scrolling through as you do, and I came across a post by my good friend, Dr. Dave Williams, who was talking about 12 questions to learn about your system. And those 12 questions are absolutely key if you're an elected official, or indeed if you're working within an EMS system to understand how your systems work. And so I'd like to welcome as my first guest of 2023, Dr. Dave Williams. Dave, thanks for joining me. Hey, Happy New Year from Austin. And a ha- Yes, and a Happy New Year from the left coast. So uh, <laughs> good to, it's good to see you. Now, I was, uh, as I say, I was scrolling through LinkedIn, 12 questions to learn about your system. But before we do that, just give us a little bit of the uh, Dr. Dave Williams background uh, for those that may not be familiar with you or indeed your work. Sure, sure. So, well, thanks for asking. Um, so my name is Dave Williams. And as I mentioned, I, I uh, am here in Austin, Texas. I moved here more than 20 years ago uh, to be, when I came to be a paramedic uh, in what was Austin EMS um, in the 90s uh, and uh, worked as a paramedic in the system as it became Austin Travis County EMS and was a commander over quality um, uh, back in, in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, and then uh, I uh, left, uh, and uh, part of that, actually, I should mention, I, I came from Charlotte. I came from Mecklenburg EMS Agency, which was another system going through transition um, right at the time when, uh, um, uh, right after GEMS uh, had uh, featured it in, in a famous article called uh, Turf War Charlotte. Um, and so I, uh, but anyway, uh, in the um, early part of the turn of the century, uh, I left Austin and started uh, consulting. Uh, uh, I worked first uh, for a, a known firm uh, in the industry, Fitch and Associates, uh, and uh, and then on my own uh, in as a, an EMS consultant. Uh, and then uh, in parallel, I for the last um, uh, what thirteen, fourteen years uh, have been working a great deal in uh, improvement uh, with uh, improvement science and uh, with my uh, longest running partner, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I also was uh, 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 was inside as a senior leader for uh, four years, uh, running uh, the improvement science and methods uh, work and the leadership work uh, at IHI, and still uh, teach in their improvement advisor professional development program. Also, let me big you up, uh, Dave. You not only worked on these shores, but of course, you've been over, spent a lot of time doing stuff for the National Health Service uh, in the UK. I think. Yeah, as a matter of fact, when I uh, one of my first projects uh, when I started supporting the Institute for Healthcare Improvement uh, back in 2009 uh, was to work on a big patient safety collaborative with the National Health Service. It was to take uh, the patient safety work that had been started in Scotland uh, and bring it to the south of England, uh, and uh, so I started there. And over the years, um, I've uh, worked a number of different projects throughout. 
the world uh, for IHI, including uh, a number of different uh, uh, national ambulance services. I'm excited to say we have uh, viewers and listeners from the UK, Dave, so they'll be familiar with your work and uh, and remember you. So moving on, as I said, there, there was I scrolling through LinkedIn, as you do every morning, and uh, there was a Dave Williams uh, post on the 12 questions to learn about your system. And there are some key questions you mentioned, actually, Mecklenburg and uh, and Charlotte a second ago. We're going to talk about them in, in under Great. one of the headings. But let's just do the easy bit, and I'm just going to throw some headings at you, and then talk about uh, you know what you need to understand about your systems. And so this is a bit to sort of twelve swift questions for Dave Williams. But here we go. So who do you serve and how? I mean that sounds a bit of a no brainer question, but uh, break that out for us. Well, it does sound like a no brainer. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of my other favorite no brainer questions is what's your mission. Um, but in most of the organizations that I work with, we actually spend a lot of time starting there. Um, uh, people frequently sort of take that for granted that they, they know their mission, uh, that they're clear on it, um, that everybody understands, you know, what, what their mission is, what their vision is, what their values are. Uh, and the same thing comes with the community, uh, actually the inspiration for that particular question, uh, came out of some work that happened here in Austin, the University of Texas, um, Dell Medical School. Uh, there was a, uh, they recently um, uh, 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 retired this group, but there was a design group that was uh, based on a bunch of folks that came from IDEO uh, who were um, focused on trying to learn about how to improve the, the health system in, in Austin. Um, and when they started talking to people, they realized that nobody could describe what is your system. Um, and so they did a, a project where they mapped out who were all of the, um, you know, what are, what is the boundary of our of our county? Um, who are all of the people that deliver healthcare? Um, what are all of the um, the folks that train and and um, uh, the the payers that that fund care? And how is that distributed across our population? Uh, and it, it seemed like a no-brainer. It seemed like something that everybody would do. Uh, but in almost every system I've ever been to, um, that's a huge opportunity to relearn about the system you serve and also to rethink about, is the system that I have um, still compatible with the system that I think I have? Uh, and to, to just add one little bit on there, good example here is in Austin. When I, when I moved here to Austin, Texas, in uh, in the late 90s uh, we were the 32nd largest city in america um the the reason it was called austin ems is because there was there were no ambulances outside of the city of austin um and actually if you lived out in the in the suburbs um you uh, either got a city ambulance or a helicopter um so there was what did i say Six hundred thousand people here when i got here today there are close to two million um, and the demographics are different. The, the density is different. The county is different. Um, so it's really important that periodically, and not every community is like Austin, but periodically you got to pause and say, wait a second, is the cheese moved? Um, or, and and uh, does my system still match the, the community that it's meant to serve? That also links nicely into one of one of our both of our favorite subjects, of course, public health and understanding yeah. the population at risk, understanding what the community is doing, how the community is evolving, and how the community is changing. And it's not one and done, as you say, because your population has grown exponentially and therefore mm-hmm. there's a need to test, adjust and move the plan almost on a regular basis, I would suggest, in, in any system, but particularly obviously where you started off in Austin. Yeah. Well, well, uh, you know, one of the things that I, uh, 
uh, teach people about is the idea of what I call there's there's planning to improve and there's planning to operate. Planning to operate is where you look at uh, you know the the world and say, well, what what what's changed slightly? I don't need to necessarily improve or change my system, but I got to adjust to better match um, uh, the demand. Um, where, where, and so when I say that, most people think, well, of course I do that. I was like, well, but are you really thinking about where your communities have moved? Uh, for example, here, the, the demographics of Austin has shifted, um, since I've lived here. Um, so what used to be, uh, 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 you know, kind of developing neighborhoods are now, um, uh, high income neighborhoods, populations that existed in one place or another have moved, languages have shifted. Um, and all of those things are going to be really in, important to continually reflect on and think about, are we still um, aligned with the community we serve? Excellent answer. And so also describing your system, I always challenge the PIO to describe your system without using the words mitigate, utilize, or resource. So that's uh, <laughs> my, my, my top tip and takeaway. Moving on. So uh, your next point was, what are your constraints? And of course, uh, we love to do what we need to do, but there's always things that hold us back and maybe hold us up. So explain that. So this actually has um, two roots. Um, one, um, I'll tell you from a practical experience being in operations. Um, I remember many, many years ago, um, I was working on an, an improvement project around um, uh, narcotic administration. And we, like um, every uh, EMS system, had some kind of process, right, to, to work on um, uh, how we managed and stored and tracked and handed off narcotics. And, and there was a, an issue that occurred where um, actually none were lost, but but the recordings seemed to indicate that some uh, the handoff had not gone well, and so there was a big you know red flag and concern. Everybody's worried, um, and the leadership just, uh, very rightly at the time said, "Well, let's figure out exactly what are the rules that we must follow." And they asked, they raised their hand, and they called the um, the the state, and they called the um, the feds, and um, and all of a sudden, when they asked, they realized that the rules that they must follow were pretty narrow. It was kind of like, we want you to take good care of them. And if you lose one, we're going to come after you. Uh, but other than that, there was like almost no constraint. Uh, but yet the process and the policy that was was built was pretty substantive. It was, it was pretty detailed, very elaborate. It had grown over time. And there was a myth about what was required in comparison to what was actual. Um, and that was one of the first lessons I had in operations. And I had this a number of different times when I tried to fix things where I would discover that there were um, there was lore about why we must do something um, that was not based in policy um, or or an ordinance. And there were things that existed that uh, people took for granted, and never thought to ask, well, why is this here? And they were following crazy rules. Um, later, when I uh, got involved in doing, um, you know, kind of traditional um, ambulance consulting, one of the th one of the things that you would do in any community, uh, you know, if I came to uh, uh, Dallas or if I went to New York or if I went to Boston, um, you know, I would go in and I the, one of the first things I would do is look for um, the federal uh, rules, uh, anything that was related to, you know, from a federal perspective, and those are pretty limited. What the state says you have to do, what are the, the things like, what do you have to keep on the ambulance? What kind of ambulance do you have to have? What um, records do you have? And if you look at almost any state site, that's pretty uh, pretty limited as well. It's the basics. It's actually uh, much, it's meant for more of the broad spectrum. So it, it's meant to work for everybody. Uh, it's not very, very specific. Um, and the final thing is I, I would dive into like the local sort of ordinances and things like that. 
Um, very commonly, I would discover that the rules, the constraints, the things that held you back from making changes were extremely narrow. There were very few things that anybody tells you that you absolutely have to have. Um, and most of the time, you just have to have them. Um, then there were a number of things that um, existed that you probably could negotiate or change. Sometimes these were harder, like ordinances or um, uh, things that were in contracts. Um, other times, these were just a matter of bringing it to somebody's attention and saying, hey, did you even know this existed and why, um, and, and altering it. But um, in my experience, a lot of organizations, a lot of leaders um, assume that they are constrained from changing the system that they have, when the reality is there's a very small number of things that lock them into um, what they do. Excellent. So read the small print, work out what you are enabled to do via ordinances and rules and regulations, and then uh, do them. The next one you you mentioned, you know, it's almost embarrassing to say we in EMS have to be concerned and understand clinical outcomes, but we do. And sometimes we don't. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I will tell you, um, I have been to, you know, dozens of of, uh, ambulance systems around the world. Um, and met with leadership teams and um, uh, government leaders. And I can count on uh, less than one hand the number of those leaders that started by talking to me about their clinical outcomes. Um, and, and actually, it, it usually is, is uh, not the first thing that comes up in a conversation. Uh, and then if you do ask about clinical outcomes, a lot of times they're not talking about the result of taking care of a patient, um, but more they're, they're um, describing a particular intervention they have or um, something that nobody else has. Um, and so it's really interesting. So when I do get somebody who pulls up data and starts talking about patients, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty impressed um, and, and I get excited. Um, and, uh, that makes, uh, that makes me, um, uh, you know, pretty optimistic, but, uh, sadly it's not where a lot of people start. And this kind of segues into your next point. And, and first of all, you know, we have what I've always described in the U S as the Ricky Bobby rule, right? It's all about the speed of getting there versus, you know, the outcomes. So if you're not first in getting there, then you're last, um, you know, the, irony that arriving a second late and the patient survives is actually technically a miss and arriving, you know, and, and then arri- arriving, I'll do that again, arriving on time and the patient dies is is a success, but arriving late and the patient lives is a failure. And uh, that's just mm. a total irony. It doesn't make sense at all. But we move on to, you know, response time compliance and emergency response. And uh, you mentioned, uh, Charlotte, you mentioned the uh, coming from there. And we've seen in the news just recently, uh, and uh, JP Peterson, the new executive director, they're talking about mm-hmm. the their active um, response in terms of not having the red lights and sirens on because they're using clinical outcomes and clinical data to determine what is an emergency versus what isn't. And this is something that we've seen a lot of work, uh, Coopas et al., um, uh, Jeff mm-hmm. Jarvis, Tegman, doing a lot of work. Yeah. And now I'm delighted to see that this is starting to come to fruition where people are going, actually, you know, we don't need to run lights and sirens at Ricky Bobby all the time. Yeah. And so this is a step in the right direction, but, to, but, but do break that out for us, Dave. Well, I'd agree, you know, and, and it's a tough one. Um, but it's one actually that I think that there's, there's a, um, there's an emerging, um, uh, leadership in that's, that, that's, uh, pretty exciting. And, and I think there should be more of it. Um, and it's tough. Uh, just this morning, I was sent a, a news article from uh, the BBC 
uh, about a call in Wales in the Welsh Ambulance Service Trust where uh, an ambulance was not able to get to a patient who ended up going into cardiac arrest um, uh, in time. And actually the, the patient's uh, a family member had to drive them to the hospital and, and they were resuscitated uh, at, at the hospital. Um, and stories like that are, are um, not good. And, and I'm sure uh, my colleagues at, at uh, WAST are, are um, uh, probably having a, a rough weekend, um, um, having to look at that and think about that and, and know that that is real. Um, that said, um, you, you have to really appreciate the history of response time. So you mentioned Jeff Jarvis. Jeff Jarvis and uh, Mike Tagman wrote a, a paper recently uh, that was published, I think, in um, pre-hospital emergency care where they, they looked at lights and sirens response. I think it was 86% of calls were getting a, a hot response. People drive in lights and sirens, one of the biggest risks that we put our, um, our community and our, our people um, in um, and they're arriving and in, and in less than 10%, I think the number was 6%, did they receive a life-saving intervention from paramedics? Less than 10%. I mean, think about that for a second. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of people don't recognize, uh, it's interesting when, um, so I'm going to tell you this, this theory I have. I have a couple of theories um, uh, and uh, one of my theories in the world is that I, I'm what, what's called a second generation EMS person. Um, and uh, right now, many of the people are, are in what's called the third generation. So, so when I started, um, I uh, was introduced to what I would call the first generation people. And maybe it's maybe I was even the third generation, but the first generation people were the folks that were the founders, the ones that in the in the seventies and the eighties um, really built the EMS systems in the country. And and uh, a, a couple of those folks that that um, have passed uh, recently um, are Jack Stout and uh, uh, Steve Williamson, who's the longtime um, uh, ambulance executive director in the uh, EMSA system, which uh, started in Tulsa, um, and so. Um, I'll, I'll say this, don't quote me on this, but you're recording it. Um, but, you know, part of the lore of response times is, is and there's, there's a number of different stories about response times. Uh, they exist in a number of different places. But the lore in terms of how we got to such a defined one is that they were working together and I think it was 1979 or 80 um, to develop the, one of the first public utility model systems. And they had an aspiration to try to create some kind of quality characteristic, some kind of measurement that they could hold contract ambulance services accountable for that was actually tied to evidence-based care. And, and they went looking. And at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of EMS research. If you go on PubMed, EMS research was not um, uh, you know, pumping out every quarter uh, like it is today. Um, and But at that time, Mickey Eisenberg was a young uh, guy in, in uh, Seattle doing some interesting research. And he wrote a paper um, that said that that um, you know it looks like if if somebody in cardiac arrest gets help within uh, in under in, I think the language was in under nine minutes um, then uh, then they have a better chance of survival and they went aha we got something um, so we can deliver paramedics in under nine minutes and da 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 wouldn't that be cool let's just tie it to this one paper now today we know that tying anything to one single research paper is probably not the greatest idea but the intent was good um, and they created it and then of course through a series of both consulting relationships and adaptations over time, um, they ended up um, uh, 
uh, adopting that in a number of different places. Now, a lot of people go back, oh, and there's a long story about how it became eight minutes and 59 seconds that goes, it deals with technology of CADs and, well, and I can, stuff I that's can kind of fun. jump in on, on that one, Dave. Of course, back in the UK, we, we looked at the Eisenberg et al. paper, and that created what was called the Orcon standard in the UK, which was the operational mm-hmm. response control standard. And that yeah. was, uh, 759 for, within for 75% of the time. So we had that uh, okay. fractile response by which we were hung, drawn, and quartered. N- no talk then of, of clinical outcomes, but we were, yep. you know, our feet were held to the fire regularly for not re- re- achieving that standard. And so, sure. you know, when I when I read the paper by Eisenberg et al., and I think a young Paul Pepe may have been involved in the writing of that way back, way back when as a, as a, mm. as a young, as a young uh, intern. But uh, yeah, so I think it was if, if first response arrives on eight minutes and so BLS arrives in eight minutes, ALS arrives in four minutes, then I think in the pig model, they were pig modeling 44% of patients survived or something like that. So, But that yeah. set the standard by which we were then held against. And one of the things that got built in there, and you mentioned the idea of a standard, is basically that there was a line drawn. People didn't really understand data or measurement really well. And so they basically started tracking, did you meet that line or did you not meet that line? You meet that standard, you not meet that standard. And that's how, how you got the, the 90% um, fractile, as it was called, response time um, measure because um, it was un- statistics weren't super known, but people who did know statistics know you can game an average. Um, and so since they didn't have other tools like Schuhart's statistical process control charts, they said, well, let's just make it you either made it or you didn't. We don't really care if you did it in eight minutes and 30 seconds or did it in three minutes. It's, you know, you're either in or out. And, and that created a whole bunch of chaos um, that's influenced the system. And, and a good example of this, so going back to our, our story in Charlotte, um, back in uh, the mid-90s, Charlotte uh, got uh, uh, pummeled in the Charlotte Observer for having an average response time of 15 minutes, I believe it was, citywide. Um, it caused a major upheaval um, and resulted in the system uh, going through a system review um, and a, uh, almost, it was a county system it was almost going to be, uh, well, they were trying to figure out what to do. The turf war was the AMR offered to, uh, take it over and privatize it. Um, the fire department, I think, uh, expressed some interest at the time. Uh, and of course, uh, Mecklenburg County EMS that it was at the time was really interested. Um, and they ended up coming in and, and building the Mecklenburg EMS agency, which was kind of a quasi governmental form. It was based off of the PUM model, which is the only, uh, system design that's, that's evidence-based or that was built off of, of research initially. Um, and, and that's how medic, uh, came about. Now, 15 minutes was the average. The original contract of medic was for 10 minutes and 59 seconds at, I don't think it was 90%. I think it was 85%. So years later, after the system had really reorganized itself and, and really improved. Uh, and I'll tell you, I got there. I uh, was there in 96, 97. Um, I was actually there when Joe Penner uh, showed up uh, or got hired. Uh, I remember him. I, I still uh, am thankful for the turkey he gave me for Thanksgiving that year. Um, and, uh, uh, I can remember uh, him even mentoring me as a young medic. Um, but a bunch of improvement, a lot of change, uh, really helpful. And at one point, somebody asked the question, well, should we move the goalpost? Everybody else is doing this eight minutes and 59 second thing, and we're doing 10 minutes and 59 seconds. Peter Pons had wrote his paper in Denver, and uh, Tom Blackwell, who was the medical director at the time, did a study. And they basically, were, they were trying to ask that question, which I thought was a great 
question. Let's look at our data in our own community and try to decide if there's any clinical benefit of cutting off two minutes because we know there's going to be a financial investment required and a change in the system. And their their paper um, uh, said no. And so th- with their own evidence that they published in a peer-reviewed journal, they went back to the community and said, um, it doesn't make sense. So now come back many, many years um, it's interesting to see Charlotte continue um, to bring evidence to their community and make a case for system change. And that's excellent. And so, you know, a few shout outs coming out based on what you just said there. So, shout out to Mark, uh, to uh, to Charlotte, to to JP and the mm-hmm. team. You're doing great work there. Go back to yeah. WAST. You mentioned that. So, let's break out that acronym, which is the Welsh Ambulance Service Trust, and our good friend Jason yep. Killens doing some sterling work there. And I'm just going to plug. Uh, we're doing an international series every month. I'm interviewing a different nation's EMS leader. And coming oh, up great. next, I've actually got uh, Darren Mockery from the Association of Ambulance Chief Executives in the UK. So look forward Fantastic. to that uh, next month. And uh, in fact, uh, if, you, if you're watching and listening, you'll just uh, have enjoyed uh, the session I did with the team from Kigali in Rwanda. And they are actually, Dave, the jewel in the crown of African EMS. Mm. I have to commend them to you and the work they're doing there. Um, we're just going to take a second and uh, have a message from our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioural health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. So welcome back. I'm here with uh, Dr. Dave Williams, and uh, we're talking about the 12 questions to learn about your system. We got to the halfway point. We just talked about response time compliance and emergency response. Overutilization. Uh, it doesn't seem we have enough vehicles and people going around at the moment to utilize anything, but uh, talk about overutilization. Well, uh, so overutilization is... is uh there's a couple of things. So, so one thing I'll, I'll you know, we'll take it back a little bit um, to think about early system design. One thing that you have to appreciate is that, um, you know, when when Jack Stout and and uh, uh, and folks and there's a whole host of interesting folks um, that were involved in um, the the late '70s, early '80s, they were building systems that had a, a, a number of fundamental theories behind them. Right. So one is. Um, about this critical patient, right? And there were two different types of critical patients. There was trauma and and cardiac, and I'm sure there were other uh, things that were going on as well, but those were two driving factors where evidence was saying this system could make a difference. And, And the theory was how do we move from, uh, you know, from, from untrained, uh, ambulances in America had actually been trained prior to World War II and then, uh, kind of fell back. And there was a lot of diversity in terms of what that training was. How do we get to trained people? who can start care, take them to a hospital, right? And that was kind of the main theory. Um, There the really wasn't an assumption that people were going to be calling ambulances, um, and, and I'm sure it happened, but they that weren't, were going to be calling ambulances that had uh, uh, other kinds of needs, uh, less urgent or non-urgent needs, and, uh, you know, that were falling through the cracks of uh, the healthcare system. Um, and so the whole system design was built around, as you said earlier, going fast, um, with the theory that, that, that you're trying to intervene uh, in a life-threatening um, uh, emergency, you're going to stop that cycle, treat them, and take them to the hospital so they have a good outcome. 
right? Now, one of the things that's happened now is that the system is still built to satisfy that need when the volume or the patient um, uh, requests uh, don't match that. They don't match that at all. Um, and so, as I mentioned, Jeff Jarvis and Mike Tagman's paper uh, from a while ago, you know, they, they showed that only 6% of the patients in their, um, in their study um, got a life-saving uh, intervention or, or, you know, kind of really got a, something, uh, a treatment from EMS that, that altered uh, their care. That doesn't mean that there's only 6% of patients uh, that might benefit from an ambulance. I'm sure there's a, I mean, there's a lot more than that. Um, but we know that it's not uh, the current number. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, a good example that Jim Ward from the Scottish ambulance service, uh, one of the three systems, by the way, that, uh, uh, started the conversation with, uh, clinical measures. And, um, uh, he, a number of years ago sat me down, uh, when I, I was visiting, uh, in Scotland and they, uh, walked me through their study of patients that the, uh, ambulance service had gone to, um, seen in the field and dis- determined probably didn't need to go to the ER and could have been treated either over the phone um, and redirected to another service in the NA and the National Health Service, um, or they could have been um, treated um, uh, at a later time and a scheduled time by uh, ambulance crews in the field. Um, and they started to recognize there was a big chunk of patients that, that were uh, being uh, responded to, treated by an ambulance, and they only had one option that they could give them, which was either or two options, don't take them or take them. Um, so, so to me, I, I have found that even though now there's more recognition, and you see this with um, a number of different systems that have gotten into the community paramedic space, um, a number of different, uh, all the participants that are in the uh, CMS CT3 program, there, there's an appreciation um, that, uh, and we've known this intuitively and, and through practice, but now there's a kind of a movement to say, we know that not, uh, that a good chunk, I, I'd say a majority of patients that are seen or that call 911 to, and speak to EMS or are seen by EMS do not benefit uh, from uh, transport to the emergency department. Part of the opportunity is to ask, what is that population for us? And what would it mean if we started to say, we're not going to do over overcare? Right. So I've been working with Don Berwick for more than a decade. And one of the things that we talk about at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement is how do we not do things that aren't helpful? Right. You know, when, when you take somebody to the hospital and they don't need to go and, and that's not the right care for them, um, we spend money that could be used in other places um, that could serve other patients. Um, and we potentially create bills. And obviously, another in addition to response times, we've seen the, the, the media attention on backfilling. Um, you know, you, you also create um, cost uh, for, for patients that doesn't necessarily help. So there's a huge patient population that calls us for a whole host of reasons that we may not be able to control. And it, it, it's a, there's a time for us to understand what is that population? And then how do we figure out whether it's through our own doing of, of providing service or through others to be able to reduce the over transportation of, of um, uh, folks to the hospital. Um, in addition with that comes trying to figure out um, are, do we have, to, um, are we matching our resources appropriately to the need? And, and how does that shift? Right now, it's still matching to a transport uh, mentality um, in the U.S. at least. Um, how, how do we uh, start to think about uh, better matching the, the resources that we have to, to the, 
uh, actual uh, requirements of what, what our community is asking for. So let me just jump back in with a couple of sort of sort of links for folk that are watching and listening. Um, if you go back in the annals of time, certainly when I was a, a COO in the UK, we had the publication of the Taking Healthcare to the Patient document, which was known as the Peter Bradley Report, which talked about hear and treat, see and treat, treat and transfer. And coming across the, U- the US, of course, that document is, is pretty much what we need right now. Some of those, some of those principles mm-hmm. embodied in that that created what the National Health Service, Ambulance Services turned into is something that we can benefit from. Second point, before we move on, is that uh, you mentioned surprise and balanced billing. There is a task force meeting about to get going. And so uh, Asbel Montes, uh, our good friend, is chairing that nationally. And that's where we're going to get into the surprise and balance billing stuff for ambulance, ground ambulance services. Remember, uh, air ambulances were included. Ground ambulances were excluded. One of the reasons, and again, this is kind of the next segue, Dave, you like what I'm about to do here. Um, mm-hmm. One of the reasons is because if we can't qualify how much it costs to do the business, it's very difficult to pay people the wage that we want to pay them because the income isn't actually matching the cost of doing business, which brings me on to your next point, which is living wages and parity pay. Yeah. Oh, so this is an interesting one. So as you know, um, uh, there was a, a survey that the uh, National Association of EMTs just uh, conducted uh, that they published um, that talks about the satisfaction of, of um, I think it was a, a 1,200 or 2,000 um, uh, providers that responded. Um, so I just have to say, we're link, obviously, that's, that's Luckritz from your neck of the woods there and uh, Zavansky, and that will also be in the show notes. So do go on. Oh, Great, and so so um, you know, I, I'm I'm grateful that they reached out and and tried to to hear the voice of um, uh, clinicians and the people that are are working really hard and have had a, a tough couple of years, especially um, with COVID. Um, I, I must say that there was nothing that surprised me what they said, um, and I predict actually, um, if we had looked back at surveys over time, they may not have been uh, as uh, um, uh, urgent. Uh, sounding or, or, uh, but I, but all of those things, um, were present in the past. Um, I, uh, I think that, uh, this is a leadership problem personally. Um, I think that, and, and I think it's because there's a couple things. Um, uh, you're right. You, uh, so going, remember when we, on the first question, we talked about how do you know who you serve? Right. Um, one of the things that, that helps you understand, um, what it costs to do business is to first start out and figure out what is it that I need to do? And then what's my theory about the best way to build a, an organization or a system that meets that need? So right now, most systems um, have an opportunity to learn a little bit more about what's the current situation of their community, and then really do some hard reflection on, does this system meet that current reflection? And, and likely the system was built uh, is built and evolved from what was built in 1979 or 1980, um, and and there's there's a lot of opportunity for change, um, and that that is important because then you need to figure out like what what is it that it would cost to do. Um, a second piece that that you're very familiar with is then to say, well, great, if I know this population and I know the numbers in terms of where the the people are coming from, um, then I can learn about what is the potential revenue that can come in. Um, uh, from users, right? So, um, and uh, and one thing that I think has shifted pretty dramatically over time is that in the early days, 
um, it was humanly possible to run a system um, based on just the users. Um, and there are many zero subsidy systems around around the country. It was it was built into the originally into the public utility model and the uh, 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 franchise model. Um, and and those days um, uh, seem to be pretty over. There are very few systems that seem to be excited about operating in that in that way. So so you got you know simple like uh, running a household, right? You got uh, you know cost uh, and 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 revenue that that uh, come together now. Uh, one of the biggest costs that you have are people. Um, and there are certain things that um, uh, I think uh, are um, hel- helpful to appreciate when you think about people. Now, now I know, uh, you know, when I, uh, uh, some of this dates back to when I uh, you know, worked as a city employee, but um, there's a few things that just start out as basics. And I think, I, I think um, it's important when you're having conversations with the media and the community uh, to not just say, uh, we need to be paid more, um, or we're not paid enough as that guy. Um, uh, in my experience, what communities always do is they look at where you are. Um, they'll go out and look for any available data, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics or some survey on on an EMS website. Maybe they'll go to the, um, uh, the Inter- International City County Management Association um, and see about benchmarks there. They, they don't really work real hard. Um, to find uh, uh, benchmarks. As a matter of fact, one of the f- services that I ended up doing years ago, I, I don't do it anymore, but I used to do salary surveys uh, for, for especially private leaders who were trying to figure out because they, they were like, I'm, I don't want to be paid that. And they were trying to figure out like different uh, salary pieces. The data on, on salaries sucks, right? There, there's no good data to know what it should cost. Um, and most of the normal ways that people look at it are terrible. Um, when... So from a practical standpoint, there's a couple of things I look at to start off. And, and these, this is why I throw this out as a question. First one is, what does it cost to live in your community? What's the living wage? MIT puts a calculator out where you can calculate the living wage for an individual, an individual with kids, a uh, family with, with only one person working. You can break it down. Um, in my community, uh, when I first moved here, uh, a, my two-bedroom apartment, I believe, was 600 bucks a month. Um, that same two bedroom right now is about $2,000 a month. It's a big difference. I don't believe the starting paramedic salary that I had in the, in the nineties has uh, changed at that same level. Um, you'll appreciate this. A pint of beer was $3 and now it's almost seven or eight. Uh, so, uh, uh, there's a big difference in, in, uh, in cost, um, for, for people to live. And so one of the challenges that we run into is. And that's clearly a U.S. point, not a British point as well. Yes, a U.S. pint for sure. Um, but uh, one of the challenges that you encounter is that like in my community, um, teachers, cops, firefighters, paramedics can't live here. They won't live in my neighborhood. They can't afford to live here. Um, and there are a number of other factors that come into play that we could get into about um, that are affecting everybody. So so one of the first things that I think you need to start with before you go anywhere on the EMS conversation is where are we in relationship um, to uh, our community, what is the, the the living wage in our community? Uh, what what is it that people like teachers and firefighters and others um, need to make in order to be able to actually live in the boundaries of our system? Think about that. If your staff can't live in the boundaries of your system, that seems like a problem. Um, the and so for me, that that's kind of um, the the base level. That's the the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Everything else has to start there to some degree. 
The second thing that came comes up a lot, and 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 uh, many city uh, pe- uh, city county leaders don't fully appreciate this is the next benchmark that almost anybody uses are the people that they show up on calls with. Right. So I could care less about my neighbor in the county next door. But if I find out that the firefighter that uh, I'm partnered with on running this medical call or the police officer that that's helping keeping me safe as I'm trying to um, get the patient to the hospital, um, make different um, incomes than I do when I have pretty comparable um, or sometimes more training hours, um, definitely um, uh, risk of injury and, and death from uh, Brian McGuire's work. Um, then that bugs me, um, and to be honest, I think that's that's a second deal killer. So if your if your people can't live in your community and have a living wage, that seems pretty bad. Yeah, I wouldn't have high expectations above that. And then if they're looking at their peers um, that are out there running nine one calls together and they don't have some degree of parity, you're dead in the water. From I there, just jump in there because we're doing some work here in California over trying to, you know, increase uh, medical, as we call it, to in- therefore mm-hmm. increase the wages. We have our, all of our unions are actually on board, but the phrase that pays, sure. the phrase that stopped me dead last week as we interviewed somebody and the EMT or the medic said, I can make more money putting fries into the oil than I can putting gauze into the wound. And that really stopped me, blew me away and went, wow, sure. we need to fix that. Yeah, I was at a Five Guys that had a higher a Five Guys Burgers and Fries um, that had a, a starting wage higher than than the ambulance service in the community. So, so I mean, that's where I'm getting at. Like, you know, I, I think you have to shift the conversation from saying we're not paid enough, we should get paid more, to showing some local comparisons. This is where people live. So, so if I can get a higher paid job with less hours and better benefits, going to work for a supermarket here in Austin, HEB is a great organization. Um, it is a supermarket organization that covers Texas. If I can go there and have better career opportunities and get a better wage and, and better benefits and better time off, um, that's a comp- that's a competitor um, to you in the local market. So, so for me, I locally I start there. I, now it doesn't mean that you you shouldn't have to branch out later, but I want to I want to make people uncomfortable with the fact that um, my emergency folks can't live in my neighborhood. There are two recent things that uh, the people um, locally that have uh, done this in a way that I think has really been disruptive. One is the, the teachers union. Um, the teachers union is continually making it clear to you that that wonderful neighborhood school doesn't have any teachers that live in your neighborhood because they can't afford to. Um, and they're actually uh, and uh, creating housing. This is a whole other issue around housing policy. But they're they're uh, they've encouraged people to create housing in addition to trying to figure out the wages to be able to get teachers who can live in the community. Uh, my mother was a teacher. We lived down the street from all my schools. That was a really important part of being part of the community. Uh, um, so I, I think that that is the minimum. Then you can start to have bigger conversations about um, uh, what is the 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 right. Uh, uh, the right wage. And I think that's a, a real conversation too. I, I think you pointed out, you also have to keep an eye on where are there other places where a person of similar education and skill will make more and and uh, uh, be able to support their family better. And also where are there places um, that are similar professions like uh, any allied health profession where somebody could end up going to school for a year or two at a great community college um, and leave. And and the the NAMT survey, uh, you know, people uh, there was a large chunk, and this is this is true um, 
in healthcare as well, um, there's a large chunk that are um, uh, looking uh, to leave the profession. One final thing I want to say, uh, Rob, because I think this sometimes gets um, forgotten. Remember that EMS people are EMS people, but they're also people people. So all of the things that are affecting everybody else affect you um, and uh, or affect your people. So, you know, when you hear people talking about, and I saw this about life balance and childcare and housing and all these, uh, uh, you know, COVID and homeschooling or, you know, because, or Zoom schooling and um, all of these various things affect every one of those folks. And I, I know leaders know that, um, but, but you have to factor that in and, and add in the factors of the uniqueness of this um, profession. Um, yeah. So I'll leave it there. The only other thing that was making me think of a a quick lesson that I learned a long time ago is you also have to remember that almost all your staff are not your generation or not you, which means that they have a totally different value system and a totally different uh, prioritization of things. Believe me, is the subject of many sessions, presentations, and podcasts. And uh, I, quick story back at you: we were looking at uh, you know the outcomes from Pinnacle last year, and one of the realizations is that uh, you know some of some folk that may look like me and you were sort of going you know how, how do we deal with this younger generation and then they start to arrive at pinnacle and we go my goodness they're in amongst us you know mm-hmm. we have got well and, and we've got to stop talking about how we're going to work with them and let them tell us actually now we're, um, this year at pinnacle we're going to put them on the stage um we're going yeah. to have to move on because obviously we are sure. going to run out of time otherwise but uh, i just want to remind everybody that we did a fantastic discussion with the good guys at durham uh, on this podcast and they actually dave you'd be pleased to know use the mit scale as the basis of their case to uh, to increase their salary so have a listen to that Great. one too and again we'll put that in the show notes so moving swiftly on workforce safety goes without saying but do say well i i think that this is a, a huge issue um uh you know uh, people take for granted um, the the risk and and also the wear and tear that comes from ambulances. I mean, when I started in EMS, and uh, this will date me, uh, as you mentioned, I, you know, I forget that I'm in, in the older crowd. Um, but I we use deadlift stretchers, the kind that you had to lower to the ground and then deadlift up in the air and put it into the van. Um, and uh, you know, and that you know, over time, you know, uh, that has an impact. I still can feel my my knees and my back. Uh, even though I haven't been doing that uh, work for some time. Um, you know, Brian McGuire, uh, who was a professor of mine at the University of uh, Maryland, Baltimore County, um, it just opened this one up in many ways uh, for our industry in terms of really helping uh, to, to see um, the risk that exists that, that, that's hidden um, and uh, that there are problems um, that need to be fixed. Um, some of these are, um, there are known answers for things that we can adjust and people have been improving that for a long time. Some, you know, uh, you see, uh, you know, those deadlift stressors don't exist anymore. There's self-lifting things and, um, there's, there's different, uh, tools and people are a lot smarter, uh, about what they do, but there's still a lot of fitness issues. There's still, uh, a lot of pushing people, uh, beyond, um, their limits and there's still a higher than, uh, probably appropriate, um, risk. And I, I think that uh, it's a priority that uh, if we really talk about putting uh, paramedics and EMTs first, that you, you, you have to really understand where are we there and how do we, how do we help uh, to continue to make sure that folks are healthy and, and safe? Yeah. 
as as you know, my my civilian ambulance life started back in the UK, and, and as a as a chief in the UK, one of the most scariest courses I attended was simply called Health and Safety for Senior Executives. And of course, the health and safety executive in the UK is all all powerful, all knowing, and has lots of uh, you know punitive powers. And I spent a, a good few days learning how many ways I could end up in jail for not taking care, paying attention to this. And so it came it came with me to the US, and every vehicle we had had lifting cushions in, um, and all those aids that would make you know the, the provider's life better. And of course, one of those standard things I get when I go to conferences now, and I say, "Put your hands up if you're a senior medic, and you remember the day your back went." <laughs> <laughs> and hands go yeah. up and we seek to avoid that again moving on and it kind of links in workforce safety patient harm do no harm to the patient but uh, um, i'm going to quote matt striga actually and matt striga said to me if we just stop dropping patients on stretches i'd be out of a job so we don't want to do any harm to the patients well and and so stretcher drops and things like that are um the most known things are the common things uh you know, a big chunk of my work when I when I work uh, in in healthcare systems, and actually where I got started with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, is around patient safety, and and patient safety was um, uh, around uh, uh, things that we either directly do to somebody, we make a medical mistake, or we uh, um, you know give a wrong dose of medication. You've heard about those over the years, um, and sometimes it's also that we miss stuff. Um, right. So uh, I know that there are times that in my career where we uh, had a patient deteriorate on us and we didn't recognize it and we could have. Um, or um, uh, I can still remember um, talking a paramedic um, down who, who uh, uh, did a refusal on a chest pain that ended up in a cardiac arrest. Uh, there's there's a number of different things that happen. And, and some of those are, are accidental and, and uh, errors. And some of them, uh, a lot of them are actually built into the system or because there's no way in which uh, to do it. And um, I, um, a few years ago, uh, I had the pleasure of working with um, the Hamad um Ambulance service uh, that that uh, is the national ambulance service in in Qatar. Uh, uh, shout out to them. They I, uh, saw them in the background all over the the World Cup, and I, I can imagine they were doing some great stuff there. Um, and uh, I worked there um, with uh, their team when um, they were actually trying to both improve the front end in terms of thinking about the clinical conditions that that are evidence based, but they also had a desire to try to figure out how to create a tool. Um, that mirrored the one that was used in hospital um, to, to look at and try to uh, use a sampling strategy to figure out what your harm rate was and to figure out what were the causes of harm. And so over um, a couple of years, I worked with them and we, we actually worked with um, uh, the Institute for Healthcare Improvements Innovation Research and Development Team and designed a um, what's called a patient uh, trigger tool um, where you review small samples of, of um, patients, um, you look for specific triggers of potential harm, um, and then you you roll that up into um, a Shuhart statistical process control chart. There's actually a harm rate, um, and you can create a, um, a Pareto chart of the types of harm when you when you find them, and use that as a way, one of your indicators in your, in your um, uh, organizational dashboard to understand like where you are, and then also as you're making improvements, you can guide them towards 
um, the, the specific areas that you're discovering, the specific harm things and reduced harm. The, uh, prior to this, there had been a host of places that had tried to create a trigger tool. Uh, you mentioned um, we were talking about the Welsh Ambulance Service. Um, they had a, a, a trigger tool, American Medical Response uh, had done some work around trigger tools. There were about half a dozen of them that we found where people were trying to figure out, um, but most of them were more in the audit space than truly being tied to, to issues of harm. Um, so we, we developed it, tested it. Charlotte actually was involved in some of our testing um, and, uh, and published those results. And, um, and so I, I call it out. I, you know, uh, it actually has gotten low uptake from the industry. Uh, only a handful of uh, organizations uh, use the tool um, and measure it. Uh, but it's an opportunity to start thinking about uh, patient harm. Blair, I know uh, Blair Bigham did some work in Canada around harm. And um, there's... I will tell you that there are patients who are being undertreated or getting the wrong treatment uh, or potentially uh, uh, care that uh, can cause injury uh, that you don't know about in your system. And the stretcher drops are like the canaries. Uh, the stretcher drop, the one, you know, the self-reported medication error, the things that you hear about are just the surface of those. And this tool is aiming to take your uh, patient safety really seriously. So some some things to think about. I'd like to th- you know throw out some nuggets. Uh, my very first medical director here in the U.S., Dr. Joseph Pionato, um, created the medication cross check card to make sure that we were you know again a a pilot talking about to err as human came up with a medica- medication cross check card just to make sure that uh, you know we have a, a, a couple of sets of eyes on which reduces the error rate considerably. So if you haven't got one of those, go out and find them. Moving on, health, and, health, and oh, don't do, do carry on. Oh, no, you threw out a, a reference that a lot of people in this third generation might not know, but to Aaron Human, to Air as right. Human was a report that came out in, in I think it was like 2000. Yeah. I can still remember Ed Rock uh, throwing it down on my desk um, in Austin, um, in which they estimated that up to 98,000 people a year were dying as a result of a medical um, related uh, issue. So, uh, you know, like healthcare causing a death. Um, and that resulted in what was then known as the 100,000 Lives Campaign, where they aimed to save 100,000 and then became the 5 million Lives Campaign and was one of the big campaigns in the early 2000s around patient safety. Great that you mentioned Ed's name, but I'm now going to connect the dots because, of course, who did Ed study under in Richmond? Joseph P. Onato. Bingo. He did. He got, did. Got the full yep. line. So, to err is human. And again, Look it up, read it. It's still as good today as it ever was. Mm-hmm. And um, free. Moving on, uh, patient, sorry, health equity. Um, what do you mean by that? So um, this is a, a, a big area of focus within uh, healthcare around the world right now. Um, uh, and uh, it, it, I think, well, there are a number of different factors that called this out. So um, another Institute of Medicine report um, that is uh, very well known is uh, Crossing the Quality Chasm. Um, and it, it called out six domains uh, that are important for healthcare systems to, to think about. And one of the and patient-centeredness was one and timely and reliable. Um, but one of the last one, I think it was actually the last one, um, was equity. And uh, there's pretty universal agreement around um, the world um, that not all our patients are getting the same outcomes. Um, and uh, that that makes us mad, right? Because we don't want it. We don't think that that should be true. And, and we want to give everybody equal outcomes. But uh, you can look at almost uh, any uh, area and you're going to find that people of color, women, uh, people with language barriers, 
Um, it, there are a number of different segments of our of our uh, patient population that don't end up with the same outcomes as an English speaking, um, you know, re, uh, let's say high school educated or above um, a Caucasian person. Um, so there's been and this. Uh, became more emphasized or, or uh, more a focus of attention um, after uh, uh, there were the, a lot of the uh, racial unrest and, and George Floyd incident uh, in um, I can't remember uh, exactly what year it was and then, the, and then after that came COVID uh, or around that same time was COVID and people started to recognize that there were certain populations that were being affected in different ways than others. Um, we've seen this with infant mortality and in Black women. Um, it uh, you know or I'm not uh, sorry. Uh, 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 not infant mortality, but uh, um, uh, maternity uh, mortality. So, so it exists over and over and over again. Um, and so, there's been a real push to say uh, this is an equal or or even um, um, primary driver of any healthcare system's quality. And we need to look at and understand um, how we are doing at equitably taking care of patients. Um, and, and so part of the, the motivation of this question is to ask, um, do you know, and, and how can you look at your data? And, and in my experience, most systems don't know because the data and what they're looking at is at a macro global level. Um, maybe they break down certain data, like, you know, you mentioned response times and compliance into neighborhoods and things. Um, but the reality is there's a, a pretty low understanding of, um, whether the outcomes are happening um, uh, the same across different populations. And I'm going to tell you, if you're not looking, your outcomes aren't um, equitable. The, the, they're not getting the same outcomes. Um, and I'll tell you, one of the hardest parts about that realization and everywhere that I've ever looked is that um, trying to apply the equal approach of everybody gets the same thing never gets the equitable outcome, that everybody gets the same outcome. So, so um, it requires some attention and some uh, creativity uh, to be able to say, how do, what do I need to do uh, for the different segments of my population so that, that they all benefit, they all get good results, even if it has to be different for different reasons? So let me offer you a nugget to that one as well. So in my chief days, every summer I would have a public health intern. Um, if you have a public health school or indeed if you have someone that's looking for an internship, we in EMS are awash with data and obviously yeah. come up with a hypothesis, set them a task, set them a question, and the results are amazing. And I'm not saying it's a free good. Of course, you need to pay these people something, but actually to provide <laughs> that level of information with an intern who is you know, coming up towards a, an MPH it's it's remarkable, and uh, the data and information, and then action that you get from that, is well yeah. worth investing the time in doing that. Um, so, Robert, can I tell you a real quick story? Yeah, I, go it's on. not included on my list, but one of the things that I encourage EMS systems to really appreciate is the data that they have um, that nobody knows that they have that could really influence it. Um, I I can't tell you the number of times that I've been involved with healthcare improvement leaders who tell me a story about a firefighter or an EMT who showed up at a meeting, who sat in the corner while they were having some conversation about some, some public health issue or some problem. And then all of a sudden, um, they were surprised to discover that somebody had a printout of all the elderly people that fell by zip code. Um, and they were just blown away. Um, and I have said for a long time, and I don't, I, I don't, I have yet to see people really um, uh, do this, but uh, one of your real powers is to be able to help 
your community, your leaders understand what's happening in it. Demographic data is one of the one of the most powerful shifts of how they change policy and do things. The data that you have on what's happening in terms of, of injuries and deaths and sickness and um, and underservedness is a huge opportunity for you to enable others to to be able to change policy and to increase your profile as as a partner. Okay, I'm now going to have to add another nugget, Dave. Uh, The nuggets are coming thick and fast here now, but uh, also take a chance to have a look at the work that Nemesis have just done in terms of uh, gathering all of the opioid responses, reactions, and data on a national scale, and it's in a national, public-facing, freely available database. And so if you're involved in in opioids, there is an amazing Nemesis product there as well. So uh, moving on, uh, you've got the word waste here. I'm not not assuming it's in the alleyway by the dumpster, but I'm, I'm assuming we're talking six sigma mu the elimination of waste or are we well i so actually i would not like to attach it there and the reason being is that a lot of people write it off as soon as they hear uh, a quality term attached to it um and i i like to go back you know so i'll go back to my first generation uh mentors of folks and you know jack stat used to say that dollar wasted over there is dollar you can't use over here um, and so one of the things about any organization that's focused on quality is to try to figure out how to mu- use my dollars the best that I can. Um, uh, we, I actually was part of an effort, uh, this is a number of years ago, uh, where we uh, had, I think it was like two or three dozen healthcare systems, and we were trying to figure out how to help them use and, uh, the tools of, of improvement that, that came out of uh, industry uh, to improve the, both uh, cost and quality. Uh, it's an interesting thing. If you go to industry, the person who's driving quality is the, usually the cost, the finance person or the operations people. You go into healthcare, it's relegated over to the side. It's somebody that that um, you know is is pushed into a, another spot. Every organization I've ever been into, even all of the ones that have told me we're lean and mean and could do do better, um, has uh, almost always well, always I should say always has a, a large amounts of opportunity for reducing um, waste. Waste can be simple. It can be things like you mentioned um, about inventory or expired stuff or um, waste is um, rework. Um, when you um, have people have to do something more than once because you haven't uh, taken the time to do it right the first time or figure out how to do it or help people to do it. Um, waste includes things like movement. Um, in my community, um, uh, you know, we have folks that are working really, really hard, but they spend, I, I mean, I'm estimating, I don't know this for a fact, but they spend like 50% of their time moving the ambulance back and forth, uh, from, from their station that they never get to hang out in, um, to the hospital and to calls 50% of their time is burned driving that big truck back somewhere. Um, so there's a lot of places where there is waste. Um, if you look at the curve of demand versus staffing, um, a lot of organizations tend to have places where they've got um, a lot of waste. There, uh, so so I, I look at waste in a number of different places. Um, some of it is about we haven't designed our system to work right the first time. And so we have a lot of waste that comes from having to constantly react to it or the friction or the drag that's tied to it. Um, some of it is because we've got some antiquated ways of doing things. Um, but, you know, I think it's important. So there are a number of different things that we've talked about in terms of money, right? So if I'm thinking about how much my system should cost, um, 
you know, one, one of the, you, you mentioned it's really hard to figure that out. And you know, CMS has tried several times that GAO wrote a couple reports and, and there's wide variation and there's no rational wide variation. A lot of it is some of its choice. A lot of it's waste. Um, there's huge opportunities within organizations um, to figure out how to improve the system and align the system with what you're trying to accomplish and trim um, or repurpose, I should say. I don't want to. I don't want you to um, think I'm. I'm just advocating for for cutting. It's repurpose money that you already have. Now, I want to be very careful because sometimes, and especially people who aren't familiar with um, how quality truly works, and but have seen a lot of the bad representations, is that there's a big difference between creating a system that gets the results every time that reduces waste and being cheap and just cutting things. So, so a lot of times people say, oh, I'm going to do waste reduction and they cut training or they buy um, low bid or they, um, they, they make two people or one person do two jobs. That's not what I'm talking about. Waste is about looking at it and say, how do I create this, uh, my, my system to be like an athlete where it is mean, mean and, and really strong and a great place to work. And I got all the junk out of the way. And, and another reason to think about waste is, um, you know, and this again goes back to the satisfaction survey. Um, most employees, and this is true in EMS, but in other places, um, burn a lot of energy dealing with the friction that's caused by the organization that, that, uh, they they join. Um, if we could get the waste out of their way and and allow them to do their work, oh my gosh, uh, half. I, I don't want to say that would relieve a lot of the the stressors that, that they were describing in the, in the NAMT survey, but it would make a big dent at least on on the things that that are um, uh, caused upon people uh, in the organization uh, uh, after you fix the pay issue. So perhaps that's another, maybe you can come back and, and get into a whole discussion about change, change management, small tests of change, plan, do, study, act, how we actually eliminate that waste and turn it into something more efficient. Perhaps that's a discussion for for another time. Uh, EMS is a risky business. Risks is your penultimate uh, heading and uh, talk about the risks we need to be addressing. So this actually came from um, so a big a big chunk of my work uh, that I do outside of EMS and, and actually I've done with EMS I, I did this with um, with Mecklenburg EMS Agency is around um, organizations that want to adopt quality as their organizational strategy. So uh, Mecklenburg did that uh, a number of years ago and and actually one of my my best practice clients I brag about them quite a bit um, and uh, um, but. What, one thing that that became a game changer for them and is a game changer for a lot of organizations is is figuring out how to do uh, planning in such a way that it's really, really effective. Um, and uh, one of the types of planning that can be really useful is something called scenario planning. And this was uh, developed um, uh, a number of years ago. I think it was actually came out of uh, the oil industry um, where us, uh, there was a, a leader who came up with a methodology to, to look at and um, – uh, think about a risk in advance and reflect on it. Um, and uh, you know, many of us have experience of this. If you if you've been involved in emergency management, um, you know, almost every community you know knows what are the like environmental risks that are possible. You know, whether it's a, 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 you know a, a, an accident of a hazmat or weather, or you know, I, I hear you're getting a little rain out there in California. Um, and, and has Just done some kind of <laughs> little bit, right? So, so you've done some scenario planning to say, well, what, what could happen? Right. 
Um, and, and you've probably done it where like, here's the likely, we've looked at the data and the data says most of the time we're going to get 15 inches, but what would happen if we got 20, right? Um, COVID was an interesting um, kind of, I, I like to call it like a cardio version. Um, this is the best reflection I think about uh, COVID in terms of how it worked on our lives. Um, COVID was something that was a known risk, uh, but people didn't take it very seriously. Um, and, uh, or I mean, it, having some kind of a, a medical event, really, uh, you know, a, a pandemic. Um, it, I call it a cardio version because it totally interrupted everything that we knew about the world. And then there was like that period of time right afterwards where you're unsure whether the heart's going to restop or not. Uh, you know, that was that like March to June period. Um, and then it went back into some other kind of rhythm. Um, and it was different than the one before. Um, but what was really interesting about COVID is how much it helped us learn about things we couldn't see um, and how it reinforced things that we knew, but we had no model to do it. Um, and so scenario planning is about sitting down. And, and this is something that I encourage leaders to do um, every year. And sometimes they'll do it over, over several days is to think about um, certain scenarios uh, and, I'll use, um, and, and just run them through. What happens, for example, if um, uh, I'll just say that um, uh, the insurance providers stop paying for uh, transport uh, to the hospital for somebody who doesn't need to go to the ER. Let, let's just say if somebody gets discharged from the ER and didn't need to be there um, or that wasn't their best use of care and they just cut off that funding, what, what, would, that, what would happen to you? And then what, how would you have to change your system to react to that? Now, that sounds dramatic, but it could happen. What if um, this um, back billing um, uh, conversation keeps humming and keeps coming, and then somebody drops a law that says you can no longer do that? You can only do, um, you know, a certain. Well, that's uh, the uh, exact scenario, a live scenario it's a very, that's currently being discussed. I just want to yeah. jump in and also talk about, from a military planner perspective, the old military man in me, the process you've described is called IPB, Information Preparation mm -hmm. of the Battle Space, and looking at yeah. the environmental factors and then simply saying, so what? If they're coming this way, so what? What do I have to yeah. do? What are the tasks? What are the implied tasks? What are the solutions? What is the route to victory? And so. Well, so and it's, it's true. I mean, it happens in a number of different places. Sometimes it can be just useful for you to be able to get prepared, make sure your stuff's in order. It also can be very useful in terms of innovation because you might say, well, gosh, what would that look like? You know, so, so I mean, uh, coming back uh, to the Char or, um, uh, uh, Scottish Ambulance example, you know, um, just in December, um, they, uh, they posted that 50% uh, of their calls um, that were 999 or 911 uh, for us, 50% um, of those patients did not get transported. They were handled by some other means, which was a reduction for them, pretty significant um, uh, reduction. Uh, that's a huge difference. Three years ago, five years ago, whenever I was there, they they said, "Here's what we're going to try to do." They planned it out. They knew the patients that, and now they've had a they have a dramatically different system that's going to shift the way that they think. It, some of these scenarios, uh, Charlotte's example of saying, "Well, what happens if we if we don't need to have ambulances that can get there in in ten minutes and fifty nine seconds? What does that mean?" What is that? What's the difference? You know, um, at some point, I, I've been watching, you know, a lot of the community paramedic. At what point do, are you able to shift not needing as many ambulances or do you change the system? So um, looking at different scenarios like this um, can help you to, to uh, both 
think about like uh, what you might need to do to shift, but also to help you to really be creative and, and, and going back to the constraints we talked about before, if there are no constraints that say you can't do it, why, uh, why not? Like why, why not think about it? So scenarios, um, ri- using risk, uh, introduce the idea of scenarios. Um, and and I'm, I, I encourage people to think about other things beyond COVID that could be a risk to your system that could be a jolt like that, a cardio version. Uh, but I also use it in a positive way. What are things that could change um, that could disrupt your marketplace um, that would make the system or something different? The, the staffing issue is, is a current one um, that, you know, was predicted for years. And I suspect there's going to be some change that emerges out of it. Um, but it's a good exa- opportunity to be able to um, to use uh, a, a structured planning process to, to think about it and, and run the numbers. Finally, and intriguingly, your last point is by what method? What do you mean by by what method, Dave? This is a it's an old um, uh, prompt that Dr. Edwards Deming used to use um, with leaders. So leaders would say, "I want to improve something, or I want to change something." Um, I want to make something better. And he would always push back and say, uh, well, by what method? How would you go about doing it? Um, there, there's two parts to me for this that are important. Um, and, and, I, and the reason I, I raised it is that most organizations don't have um, either of these two methods. <laughs> but um, So it's a really useful tool. It's a, a lot of where, where I end up uh, teaching leaders. Um, the first one is to have some kind of method about um, how you do work. And so in our case, and you mentioned this earlier, um, uh, I'm uh, deeply rooted in, in the science of improvement and the methods that are tied uh, to quality. And so um, we use scientific problem solving uh, as a way to um, uh, look at something, break it down, figure out what are the things that we want to uh, test and figure out what works and what doesn't work. Sometimes it's simple stuff like doing PDSAs. Sometimes it's more advanced stuff like actually doing planned experiments. Um, but we we change the process of the system and use data to figure out how to how to get a different result. Right. So so that's one method. The other is around what we call. Um, truly understanding what causes the outcome. And this is this is a trouble spot, I think, in EMS. Um, I don't see this thinking a lot at all. So I do see people who ha- might have, if it's not an improvement method, they might have a, a some kind of shared approach that they do to problem solving, uh, which is useful, especially, uh, it's better than having everybody just kind of do their own thing. But the second one is to look at um, what's, uh, I, I use the term, sometimes I get picked on this for sounding academic, but w- what's your theory? What What's your uh, theory behind how something has to happen? Um, you'll notice when you go down the list that I think at least 10 out of 12 of these had a citation. Um, they, they weren't something that I just pulled, um, out of thin air. Um, they were rooted in, uh, most of them were rooted in some kind of peer reviewed paper where somebody introduced a question or an answer. Um, and it was building on that or, um, uh, showed some evidence. So, so when we, in, in healthcare, uh, if I'm working with the, uh, like I, I'd be laughed at if I if I didn't approach it this way. If I if I walked in and said I want to change something, the first question people might ask or is do we is there any evidence out there? And that and they don't throw that up as an obstacle. Uh, I get that a lot as an obstacle in EMS. People want to say ah, there's no studies. Well, crap, there's barely any studies for anything in EMS. Uh, you know, unless I want to uh, go look at a, a, a spinal uh, uh, or airway. Um, you know, if I, if I did a parade or, a, a, you know, a, a 
chart of, of the uh, studies, I mean, there's almost nothing on EMS operations and, and system design. So, so that's not a cop-out. That's not a way to not change. Um, but if there is something, if, there's, if there is a study um, like Jeff Jarvis's on response times, or there is a study on um, understanding, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 like uh, patient movement or something, any of the, anything that's there, I want to I build on the shoulders of that, right? The other thing is I, if it's not in study, I might want to go out and say, well, who's the best practice? Now, I will tell you the definition of best practice in EMS has always bugged me because it really is, is um, honestly, and I, and I have been uh, a contributor of this and uh, because I've been one of these folks, is um, the more that you speak and the more that you write about yourself, um, you will get recognized as the best practice. But uh, the, the true definition of best practice is getting the results. And one of my favorite examples of this in the EMS was, was and we went going back to Mickey Eisenberg, um, Mickey Eisenberg, I can remember in the, in the 90s, uh, people would poke at Seattle, totally, you know, say, oh, gosh, they're cooking their books. They're picking all the most viable patients. There was all kinds of things. The same leaders five years later, when, when, um, people st- when uh, Seattle started sharing their method and said, here's how we do it. Those same leaders did it, got better results, and were like, "Oh, I'm all into cardiac arrest," you know. Um, and so, but and I, so I'm picking on it. But the thing that I want you to think about here is that I want to go and learn. Like when I see something and, and I see a Charlotte and they do something amazing, I want to go there. But I don't want to just be caught in the story. I want to learn about what's the method they used, um, and then I want to take that home and think about know, knowing full well. I can never copy anybody's method and get the same results in my system, but I can take their method and then try to test it in my system and adapt it. Now, the reason I I call this out and I'm a little bit feisty about it is that many organizations who get results can't articulate how they got there. And, and, um, and I I work with a lot of organizations trying to help them tease that out. How do I, how do I show what causes this result and how do I move from a lot of best effort and heavy lifting and, and passionate people to actually defining a method. And then the second thing, and this used to be a big part of my work with IHI is how to, so it's great that I can get one place to do it. How do I get two or three to do the same or similar method and get similar results? If I can do that, if I can create a um, uh, a series of them, then I know I can take it to scale. And, and Don Berwick and, and Paul Batalden, that was a big chunk of their motivation. They wanted to say, I, I read it in the literature and I see that there are people, there are best practices that can do it in one place. Um, I've been around and I've seen a few systems, two or three that can do this. How do we figure out what it is they do, the, the method uh, or the, the, their theory behind it and then package that, turn that into a change package that I can then use methods like improvement to go around and get other people to do it. And that that's why a lot of um, uh, collaborative efforts don't uh, end up getting uh, far, uh, very far is if you don't have a theory, if you don't have a met, uh, like a, a change package based on evidence and, and understanding of best practice, and then people are trying to use that, you just have a bunch of people that are hanging out trying really, really hard, but they don't know what it is that gets them there. And so, so by what method is two phases. The method that I problem solve, this, you know, the, the improvement side is what I use. Some method to problem solve and figure out how to break down, learn, test, and implement um, uh, process change, system change. And the other is developing an appreciation of what's causing somebody to get a result uh, so that I can, I can uh, hardwire that and replicate it.
So those were your 12 questions and those were your 12 answers. And I think there's almost an opportunity to have a, a, a webinar podcast on each one of those those headings. But also if you're mm-hmm. listening and watching and you have an opportunity to go to, you know, your monthly supervisor meeting or your gathering of, of you know, like-minded EMS leaders, pick a topic and have a discussion and break it out. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, you will surprise yourselves with some of the solutions, suggestions and uh, ways for forward that you come up with and so dave thank you for spending spending time to you know break that out um in classic journalistic question is there anything i haven't asked or you need anything that you haven't told me well um rob the one thing that i would say is that so you know we've kind of gone back and forth i i, I so i created 12 not because it's it's the all exhaustive list but because there are 12 months in the year um the the idea behind this um, was that I work with a lot of leaders that are looking um, for ways in which they can learn with their teams um, and think about things that really matter in their EMS systems. And so um, the instructions at the at the front of, of um, my uh, my piece says, um, you know, pick one. Um, and let's say you're meeting with your team in January. Um, start with whichever one is interesting to you. Start where there's will. You don't have to go in order. Um, uh, you, um, but I encourage you to try it. Um, the second thing is that um, the way that I described it is I don't want you, like I've just done to sort of kind of pontificate about how you feel about it or your own experience. Um, the intent is that I actually want you to pull the data um, because data um, will tell you two things. One, either you don't have the data, which tells you a lot about your ability to understand the question, um, or um, the data then helps you to think about it and look at it and go, gosh, does what I think match the data? Most times it doesn't. Um, I'll be real honest, unless you're really close to that process and you know it really, really well. For most of us as leaders, when we look at a particular slice of the organization and we look into the data, um, or we discover some differences. So that was the second piece. That I, I, the meeting should come with, uh, you know, if I'm going to talk about um, response times, I gave you three papers that gave, gave you a hint about maybe how to look at it. Well, gosh, if Jeff Jarvis and team found that only 6% got these interventions and they say these are the ones that make a difference, well, let's go pull our data. You know, I, I can do that on my ESO medical record and, um, and f- figure it out. What is ours like? Is it similar? Oh my gosh. Well, what does that mean? You know, um, if, so it's inviting you to, to think about how do I do this? You know, you, I, I mentioned patient safety. You can do a, a, a poll of your data and apply that patient safety tool and see what happens. You'll learn by doing. You will not learn if you just, uh, in my opinion and my bias, if you just you know uh, grab a bunch of Dunkin' Donuts coffee and, and get in a room together and just kind of talk about it, you'll, you'll leave in a similar spot that you entered the room. This is intended to get you to unstick your thinking, um, to really take a deep dive into your organization and reflect about it. And then in almost every one of these cases, and I predict all of them, um, you will hopefully come up with either ideas or opportunities uh, to uh, make some change uh, in a good direction. So use this discussion that we're having here, use Dave's notes and Dave's thoughts as really the handrail to to encourage discussion and change in your organization. Dave, thank you so much. Uh, if we want to follow you, keep an eye on you, uh, how can we do that? Great. Well, if you're a social media person, I, I'm still until it dies on on Twitter at Dave Williams ATX is in Austin, Texas. Um, you can find my um, my uh, EMS practice 
at medichealth.com. And, and then of course I, uh, have been doing my, um, uh, EMS practice or my, excuse me, my improvement practice, uh, is just my name, David M as in Michael Williams, PhD.com. Um, but to be honest, if you, if you Google search, uh, Dave Williams, EMS, there's like three of us that'll come up. And if it looks like me, uh, go to there. Okay. Well, if you're listening, uh, if it looks like him, go and find him. Um, if you're watching, uh, you can see what he looks like. So thank you so much. Uh, don't forget, uh, if you're listening or watching, you can please take a moment on the platform that you're listening or watching on. Give us a review. Give us f- four stars. Put us up the searchability. Um, don't forget to like and subscribe and follow and all that good stuff. Um, for the moment, uh, Dr. Dave Williams, thank you so much for joining me. So that was, uh, that was uh, EMS One Stop. And don't forget, you can follow me on LinkedIn at, uh, and also over on Twitter at UKRobale1. And uh, this has been EMS One Stop. That was Dave Williams. I've been Rob Lawrence. Till next time. Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>